Section 2 of Early Rome by Wilhelm Ina. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 1. The Causes of the Greatness of Rome. The Roman Empire in the early ages of our era embraced all the countries round the Mediterranean Sea, together with vast tracts north of the Alps, stretching in one direction as far as the Danube, and even beyond that river in its lower course, and in another, as far away as the Atlantic Ocean, St. George's Channel, the Solway Firth, and the North Sea. In this great empire was gathered up the sum total that remained of the religions, laws, customs, languages, letters, arts, and sciences of all the nations of antiquity which had successively held sway or predominance. It was the appointed task of the Romans to collect the product of all this mass of varied national labor as a common treasure of mankind, and to deliver it over to the ages which were to follow. When, after the lapse of centuries, Europe gradually emerged from the flood of barbarism which had overwhelmed it, and new nations were formed out of the wreck of the Roman Empire, it was the treasure of ancient learning saved by Rome which guided the first steps of these nations toward new forms of civilized life. The language and literature of Rome had never been altogether lost and forgotten. By slow degrees, the language of Latium was molded into the dialects of Italy, Spain, Portugal, and France. The Christian church pertinaciously clung to the old language, which was that of her ritual and of the Latin fathers. The city of Rome had become the seat of the successors of St. Peter, and her language penetrated wherever Roman Catholic missionaries preached the gospel of Christ. It became the vehicle of all the learning of the time, the language of diplomacy, of law and government, finally of education, and in the schools and universities of modern Europe, the whole world of Latin literature was fostered into a second life, and acquired an influence on the public mind of which every living man still in some way or other feels the effects. But the Latin literature, though great and admirable in many respects, is not the grandest product of the Roman mind. It was not original nor spontaneous, and consequently not truly national. In poetry, philosophy, and history, the Romans were the disciples and imitators of the Greeks. They added little of their own. Their strength and originality lay in another direction. They proved themselves masters in the art of civil law and government. The Roman law possesses an intrinsic excellence which has made it the foundation of all legal study in Europe and the model of almost all codes of civil law now in force. Every one of us is benefited directly or indirectly by this legacy of the Roman people a legacy as valuable as the literary and artistic models which we owe to the great writers and sculptors of Greece. The stupendous growth of the Roman Empire and the solidity of its structure, which enabled it to last so long, are due not so much to the courage and endurance of the Roman soldiers, nor to the genius of the Roman generals, as to other causes, and chiefly to the combination of a desire for improvement with a respect for established rights, in short, to political wisdom, which prefers reform to revolution, which is not dazzled by speculation on impossible perfection, and which never sacrifices what is good 
in order to attain what may appear to be best. The development of the Roman constitution differs in this respect from the usual course of Greek policy, and reminds us of the spirit in which the English constitution was built up, in which whatever is new is an outgrowth and development of something old, and in which mere speculation and theoretic enthusiasm have never been able to sever the link which connects the present with the past. The history of the Roman people, then, has surely many claims on our attention. It is, to a certain extent, the history of every modern nation in its earlier stages, and it contains lessons of policy, which even after so many centuries are instructive and may prove applicable in the political conflicts of the present day. No great state known to history can be traced to such a small beginning as Rome. When the kings of Persia and of Macedon built up their respective monarchies, they worked with the national power which they found ready for them, waiting only to be organized and directed. The Carthaginians started on their career of enterprise and conquest with the experience, the skill, and the wealth of their Phoenician mother country. The Romans, on the other hand, when they emerged to power in Latium and Etruria, could boast neither of a numerous nor a civilized ancestry. They had found no accumulation of wealth ready for their use, no political experience which they might have applied. They had everything to make from the beginning. They had to form a nation and a national character, to create national wealth, to acquire political experience. They succeeded in all this, and so vigorous was the spirit which animated the citizens of that single city that it infused itself into the population of all Italy, and to a certain extent of the ancient world. And thus the language, customs, thought, and religion of numerous nations were Romanized, and exhibit traces of their origin even at the present day. What was the cause, we may well ask, that gave such a superiority to Rome over other cities of Italy? Why did not Veii, or Naples, or Syracuse become the nucleus of a great empire? Had Rome an advantage over them, with regard to soil, climate, or geographical situation? This question must be answered in the negative. The soil in the neighborhood of Rome was comparatively sterile, the climate unhealthy, the situation unfavorable for commerce. The city had no good port, nor was there a large fertile country behind it which might have supplied materials for export and markets for foreign goods. If Rome had no such advantages, was it to any advantages of race and descent that she owed her eminence? Again we must answer in the negative. The people of Rome were the same race as their neighbors. They could boast of no superiority on the score of descent. For a long time, indeed, the fable of the descent from Aeneas and his Trojan followers had currency. This fable is now exploded, and if it were not, we should hardly infer that for their political and military greatness the Romans were indebted to Oriental ancestors. More recently, an admixture of Etruscans has been inferred from indications more or less significant. But this admixture has not yet been proved by any satisfactory evidence, and moreover the political and religious systems as well as the language of the Etruscans were entirely different from those of the Latin or other neighboring tribes. The Sabines and Latins, who combined to form the fundamental element of the Roman people, were offshoots of the Sabellian stock 
to which all the native or aboriginal population of Italy belong, from the Apennines south of the Po to the extreme end of the peninsula. It was therefore not superiority of race which gave the Romans predominance in Italy. We must look for another cause. Perhaps we may be led to surmise that it was a fortunate succession of great men which raised the Romans above the other Italian communities. We know that the Persian, the Macedonian, the Arab empires owed their rapid rise to the genius of individuals. In modern Europe, the aggrandizement of Prussia is due to some considerable degree to the eminent political and military qualities of the Hohenzollern dynasty. But Rome was singularly sterile in great men. She was made powerful and predominant by the almost unheeded labor of a vast number of citizens of average ability, not by men whose names have the ring of Solon, Pericles, and Epimenandus, or Alexander, or, if we compare modern times, of Charlemagne, Peter the Great, Frederick, or Washington. The kings and statesmen to whom the establishment of the state and the laws is ascribed, such as Romulus, Numus, Servius, and Brutus, belong not to authentic history, but to prehistoric fable, and when politicians arose who exerted an influence beyond that of private citizens in the service of the state, men like Sulla and Caesar wielded in their hands the power of the whole community, the greatness of republican Rome had passed away. If, then, the first cause of Roman greatness, the first impulse given to national development, is to be found neither in the advantages of soil and situation, nor in the superiority of race, nor in the genius of great men, shall we be driven to say that it was mere chance, or in more reverent language, divine providence, which selected Rome as the seat of empire over Italy and the world? Such a conclusion would not be a solution of the problem, but an evasion of the difficulty and a confession of weakness unworthy of the spirit of historical inquiry. Providence does not act contrary, but according to fixed laws, and it is for us to investigate these laws, not to ignore them. Nor is it utterly impossible to discover the cause to which Rome owed in her infancy such an accession of strength as secured to her the superiority over her neighbors, and thus laid the foundation of her future greatness. If we compare the site of Rome with the sites of the numerous cities which simultaneously with the earliest settlements on the seven hills covered the plain of Latium and the adjoining hills, we find that each of the other towns was built on some steep or easily defended hill. Some of these hill towns, such as Praeneste, were actually stronger than either the Roman capital or the Palatine Hill. But nowhere do we find, as on the Tiber, a group of hills possessing each the advantage of defensibility, and yet lying so close to one another that the political isolation of each was impossible, and that some kind of combination or federation for the maintenance of internal peace became absolutely necessary. People who live at a distance from each other may indulge in occasional strife, but if by proximity of habitation they are compelled to have daily intercourse with one another, they are obliged to agree upon some terms of amicable life. If they do not prefer the miseries which internecine war must entail on all. This was the condition of the various settlements on the seven hills which lay so near together that nature itself 
seem to have destined them to form a combined city. There are dim, half-fabulous traditions which speak of wars raged between the people of the Quirinal Hill and that of the Palatine. But the same traditions also report an amicable settlement of the combats, an agreement to live in peace, a combined government of the respective chiefs. In fact, they describe a confederation of the two peoples and their combination into one political community. Nor are these facts traceable only in the traditions of the Roman people. They are equally so in their institutions. The association of the Roman gentes, houses, to form curiae, wards, and of these to form the three tribes of Romnes, Tities, and Luceres, together with other indications of a gradual union of independent bodies to form the Roman people, show clearly enough that the principle of association lay at the root of the early vigor of Rome, and gave to the combined people of the Romans and the Sabines, Populus Romanus Quiritium, such a preponderance over each isolated Latin city that Rome alone became fit to be the head of Latium. Thus then arose a spirit of political association based upon calculations of interest, but sanctioned by the sense of right. Nor, when it had accomplished its first task, the security of the seven hills, did it die away, but continued to work on a larger scale when Rome had become great. City after city and tribe after tribe were invited, or compelled, to join the leading power as allies, socii, until the whole of Italy, though in fact subject to Rome, appeared to be only one vast confederacy. We have seen that the geographical position of Rome and the peculiarity of race cannot be deemed to have been the first causes of Roman greatness. Now, however, after we have discovered the first cause, we may and must admit that both these circumstances powerfully contributed as secondary causes to accelerate and consolidate the growth of Rome when it had taken root owing to the peculiar formation of the ground. The comparative sterility of the territory encouraged the warlike spirit of the early Romans, whose frequent wars seemed to have been undertaken oftener for the sake of booty than in just self-defense. It is possible, too, that the unhealthiness of the surrounding district at certain seasons of the year may have served as a barrier to ward off attacks when other resources failed. The remoteness of the sea and the want of a good port was a protection from the numerous pirates which infested the Tyrrhenian waters. But it was especially the situation of Rome in the middle of the peninsula, cutting off the northern from the southern half, which enabled her to divide her enemies and to subdue them separately. Lastly, the similarity of race which bound the Romans by the ties of blood and common customs to the Latins and the Samnites, the Campanians, Lucanians, and in fact to all the indigenous races of Italy, enabled them to repel the invasions of their non-Italian enemies, the Gauls and the Carthaginians, and to appear in the light of champions and protectors of Italy. When in the time of the first historical inroad of the Gauls, the onset of these barbarians had been broken by the brave defenders of the capital, Rome rose from her ashes as by a second birth, with the title to preeminence among all the peoples of Italy, and when the proud and able Hannibal was foiled before the same walls, Rome, in a still more signal and decisive manner, fought at the head of the Italians against the common foe. End of section 2